And to begin today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. I'm basing my sermon out of that. And, and uh, I want you to turn there with me. And we're going to read the first seven verses. And we're going to see that beautiful Jesus who has compassion on us, who loves the lost sheep, uh, who loves the one who is weak and unable to do anything for himself or herself. We're going to see the beautiful name of this Jesus as we read together the first seven verses and then we'll pray and I'll get into my sermon today. Let's read along with me as I read Luke chapter 15 verses 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you as the merciful and compassionate Savior that you are. Lord, we come recognizing our deep need for your salvation. We come recognizing that we are indeed this lost sheep that Jesus speaks of. Lord, we are weak and frail. We have wandered in this world trying to make our own way, trying to find our own path. And we have found ourselves in a desolate place, unable to do anything for ourselves, finding that there is no purpose, there is no fulfillment, there is no meaning in this life apart from you. And so, Father, we come to you with beggar's hands. We come to you with a a needy heart. We come to you empty-handed, unable to offer anything to earn our acceptance before you. We come to you as that prodigal son who has covered himself in the slop of pigs and who has wasted every good gift that you have given us. And we come to you begging for just a slave's acceptance into your family. And instead, you greet us with open arms. And you love us as a son Who has returned as a daughter who has returned. Father, we come knowing that we do not come to you any longer as slaves, as those who are outcast and enemies of God. But if we have trusted in Jesus Christ, we come to you as children. And even though this week we may have lived as though we weren't your children, we can still come to you as your children because of your love for us. And you come, uh, when we come to you, you come with forgiveness and grace and mercy because of this great love that you have for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, break our hearts today. Break our hearts for our own sin, but not just our own sin, but the sin of this world. 
Break our hearts for the lost sheep that are still out there. For whom you would risk your very fame. You would risk your very health. You would risk your very name for. Father, may we have the same attitude that you have towards these lost sheep. Give us that heart today as we study from your word. As we hear the truth of all of scripture. And your love for the lost. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's part of the human condition that we assign value to things. You know, if you're deciding to to go on a trip, you decide the worthwhile nature of that trip based on the, the cost of the trip. I've been on trips that I wish I'd never went on. I've been on trips that I wish I could get my money back for. I don't know if you... You've ever done that, but my my wife and I were married young, and and we uh, we didn't we were kind of naive, didn't know much about anything, and we decided on our second uh, anniversary that we were going to go uh, to a place up in the mountains, and we went up there, and thinking, having heard all these great recommendations, thinking that it was going to be a great trip, and we got up there, and uh, I, I, we went to the best diner that you could find in this one little place. And uh, I, I am a connoisseur of steaks. Uh, I like a good steak, right? I, you, you men know what, you, what I'm talking about. I like some good beef that I can enjoy. And I have looked forward to sitting down to a good steak with my uh, new bride and, and enjoying this steak and, and meal. And I sit down and I order what I always order. If I'm at a steak place, I'm going to order a prime rib. Because if you're a steak house and you say you know how to prepare steak, then you'll know how to fix a prime rib. And I order it medium, which on a prime rib should be a nice pink color. I'm sorry, ladies, I know that grosses you out. But I ordered it to be that and I get it. And it is a, a, a disgusting gray color. And I cut through it and it is like a piece of rubber. And I, I'm, I'm too nice. You know, people, many of you would probably say, send that back and say, I need to get another steak. But I'm too nice to complain about it. For one, I don't want to get anything extra in my drink when I get the refill. But I, I, I'm too nice about the fact that my steak is not right. And so I go ahead and I bear with it and I eat my steak. And the rest of the trip was ruined because of that steak. You know how that goes, right? You just, nothing's right after that. And so we value things. We as human beings, we're good at valuing things, whether it be a, a trip or whether it be land that we're going to buy or a car that we're going to purchase or a smart, the next upgrade of smartphone that we're going to get or a gym membership. Whatever it is, we are good and trained to value things, to determine whether something is worth the time and effort and money, or whether it's not. But the human condition doesn't just stop there. We don't just stop with the value of things. Instead, we also transfer that talent of valuing things into people as well. It is a significant part of the human condition that we don't just ascribe worth to things, but we also assign worth to people. 
We value our relationships based on the recognition that they might bring to us. We judge our friends based on what they might do for us. We decide even whether we would help someone in need based on the recognition it might bring to us or the value that it might bring to society because we've done it. We judge everything based on the value that it has in our life, even the people that we have relationships, even the people that we walk by and notice on a daily basis. We value them, we ascribe worth to them based on what they mean to us. In fact, we even do that in the names that we give people uh, and the way we communicate about people and the names that we give them often communicate just what we think their value is. We may call someone who doesn't dress or act like us a thug or a redneck or a bumpkin. We might call someone who is sheepish. Um, We might call someone sheepish if they are meek or unable to defend themselves. We might say that a child is a little lamb. And in part, we mean that because they're cute. But we also mean that because they're helpless. They're like a little lamb. We might say that a group of people that follows a person, a leader blindly, is just a bunch of sheep, right? We could go on and on with the names that we give to people that are meant to subtly demean them and assign some sort of devaluing, some sort of less worth to them. But the truth is, this condition is not something that is new to humanity. This condition is something that began with the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve. If you think about it, right after they committed the sin of taking the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they, the very first thing that they recognize after that is they look at one another and they recognize that they are naked. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 that they were ashamed. What changed between the, this side of the tree and that side of the tree? They were naked, the Bible says, and unashamed before they sinned against God. And they were naked and ashamed after. What changed? Well, among other things, they had become prideful. And they had begun to ascribe value and worth to someone. And they looked at each other. And instead of seeing the beautiful creation of God, they saw something less. And they were Ashamed. But the stories go on. If you think about the very next story in the Bible in Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother Abel because he is jealous of his brother, because his brother is recognized and accepted before God for his sacrifice, and Cain is not. And Cain becomes jealous and he wants the recognition that, that Abel has, and so he jumps on his brother in the field and he kills him. Again, we find that Cain valued his own pride and recognition more than the life of his brother, and for it he was cursed. On and on the stories go, whether it's the people of Noah's day who were filled with violence, the brothers of Joseph who were willing to sell their brother into slavery to gain their their father's approval and acceptance, The Egyptians who enslaved the people of Israel and killed their children to gain wealth and fame. Or Saul, who when he found out that David had been anointed by God, 
chased after him and hunted him down so that he might not lose his position in the kingdom. The Bible shows us that the human condition is one that values possessions and recognition more than we value other humans who are made in the image of God. The people of Jesus' day were no exception to this either. In fact, the religious leaders of Jesus' day had enshrined this very practice of valuing other people into the law of the land. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus rebukes the religious leaders of his day because they had written a law that you could give to take your inheritance that you got from your parents and give it to the temple. And in that way, you did not have to care for your ailing parents who were in need. You could divert the money that your parents had given you to take care of them in their time of need to the temple and get away with not honoring your father and mother. In John chapter 4, the woman at the well uh, confesses that Jesus should not be talking to her because she knows that Jews do not talk to Samaritans because of the deep racial animosity that was, uh, existed between those two people. In Luke chapter 7, verse 36, the religious leaders rebuke a woman for breaking a jar over Jesus' head and using up an expensive bottle of perfume that would have cost a year's worth of wages to buy when this woman was rightly worshiping the Son of God. And we all know the ultimate devaluing of human life. When the religious leaders of Jesus' day arrested Jesus, the Son of God, brought Him up on trump charges, had a sham trial, and executed Him, all while worrying about whether they were going to be done in time for the Sabbath rest. These same religious leaders look at Jesus' actions in Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, and they grumble because Jesus was receiving sinners and eating with them. But friends, Jesus values people differently than we do. And we should be thankful for it. Jesus values people differently than we do. He lived his whole life was a picture of the world's value system turned on its head, turned upside down. He was born to a poor carpenter and a peasant woman. He was born in the lowliest of positions, lived in a small, insignificant town, and started his ministry in the backwoods of the world. When many disciples started following him, he scared them off by telling them, foxes have, have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. When great crowds began to follow him and wanted to make him king, he would get in a boat and go to the other side of the lake rather than to be made king. When great crowds would press in on him for healing and many different people would come to him for healing, he would turn to the woman who had been an outcast for 12 years because of an issue of blood and she is the one that he would heal. When a rich young ruler who could bankroll his entire ministry came to him and asked for him to become a disciple, Jesus told him to sell all his possessions and give them to the poor and come and follow him and he will have a place in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus marveled at the faith of Gentiles and rebuked the faithlessness of the religious leaders. 
And on the day of His crucifixion, when anybody else in their right mind would have offered defense after defense and would have fought tooth and nail to avoid being crucified on a Roman cross, Jesus offered no defense. Jesus took the place of a rebellious zealot, a murderous zealot named Barabbas. And Jesus led a thief to salvation, all while suffering for the sake of the sins of people who rejected and despised him. Jesus does not value life the way we do. In Luke chapter 15, after hearing the grumblings of these religious leaders, Jesus tells a parable about a lost sheep. And it's a very familiar parable. We all probably have heard it before. The man in the parable loses one sheep out of a hundred. And instead of saying, oh, I'll just count my losses and move on, Jesus leaves all the wealth that is in those other 99 sheep and He goes into the desert to find that one sheep that is lost. And when He finds it, He doesn't rebuke the sheep. Instead, He takes the sheep that is weak and unable to do anything for itself and He puts it on His shoulders And he carries it back. And the Bible says, I want you to notice this. He says he rejoiced as he carried this little sheep. And not only that, but when he gets home, he calls his neighbors and his friends and he says, y'all got to come over. We're going to have a party because this sheep that was lost is now found. And Jesus in verse seven says that the, the heavens rejoice. And that heavens there is a placeholder for the throne of God. In other words, it's a way of saying that God himself on his throne is rejoicing when one sinner repents and comes to Christ. That God would rather have one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Do you see, brothers and sisters, that this attitude towards the lost represents the very heart of God. This isn't something that changed with Jesus. God has always loved to save those who are weak and those who are lost. He has always loved to save those who could not save themselves. Cain was rejected for his hubris and his lack of faith, and, but Abel was accepted because he knew that a sacrifice was needed. That he needed a blood sacrifice to wash away his sin. Abraham was a man who was as good as dead, married to a woman who had a dead womb. And yet God chose them to be the mother and the father of the church. Rahab was a pagan prostitute. David was a ruddy shepherd boy. And on and on the stories go. God revels in our weakness. David exclaims in Psalm 32 verse 2, blessed is the one who sins the Lord does not count against him. Do you understand God does not I want you to hear me on this. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps the helpless. That is the God of the Bible. The God of Benjamin Franklin would say God helps those who help themselves. But the God of the Bible helps those who take refuge in Him. 
He helps those who are weak and unable. He defends the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. He blesses the poor in spirit. And the meek are the one who, according to the kingdom of God, inherit the earth. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't you see that for this very reason Jesus came? Think of those who Jesus pursued. He called a tax collector and fishermen and zealots to be his disciples. In a great crowd of people who would have loved to to host Jesus for lunch, Jesus calls out the little short tax collector named Zacchaeus and says, I'm going to lunch with you. And because of that, Zacchaeus' life was changed forever. As his ministry was blooming and people were beginning to recognize him and he was beginning to gather a crowd together. It says in John 4 that he left that place and he went into Samaria for one woman who was, had been married five times and the man she was now living with was not her husband. These are Jesus' sheep. John chapter 10 verse 14 through 16, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. You see, Jesus would cross heaven and earth to find one of his sheep. He would risk his fame To reach a Samaritan woman. He would risk his health to heal a leper. He would give up the kingdoms of men to minister to 12 country boys from Galilee. But the greatest evidence of Jesus' love for his sheep is found in his life-giving sacrifice on the cross. Jesus would lay down his life for for every last one of his sheep. But brothers and sisters, these sheep that we find in Scripture are not the only sheep that Jesus has. As Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 16, I have other sheep and I must bring them also. Jesus is still seeking and saving today. He is still looking for those lost sheep. And the most thrilling aspect of the fact of that fact is that He chooses to use us, His church, as the instrument through which He reaches those sheep. Oh, do you see what a great tragedy it is that our attitude towards this very task can be so lacking so often. For one, we do not value the sheep like Jesus does. We do not value the lost sheep Like Jesus does. Where Jesus sees a sheep, we see a bum who needs to get a job. Where Jesus sees a sheep, we see an infidel on whom we should visit all the justice that our country can extend. Where Jesus sees a sheep, we see an annoying sibling who always got mama's and daddy's favor and who can't seem to get their life right. Where Jesus sees a sheep, we see a perfect example of a thug. But Jesus loves his sheep. Jesus rescues his sheep. 
Jesus carries his sheep when they are weak and he rejoices over them when they are brought home. We are charged with the task of finding and feeding these lost sheep. Many times, though, it's not our heart that's the problem, but our actions. Sometimes we just have other priorities. Many times we are so concerned with the cares of this world that we are frozen in place. Unable to reach the sheep that God has tasked us with finding. We are frozen in place by our complacency, satisfied with our little circle of friends, our safe and comfortable surroundings. But the man of Jesus' parable left into, left into the desert to find his lost sheep. He left all and he risked all for the sake of his lost sheep. Oh, how differently do we look. One thing that's bothered me in the last couple of weeks is the fact that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 through 12, Jesus tells his disciples, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This statement means nothing to the American church. Not because the world likes Christians. Not because we uh, are necessarily a Christian nation. And not because of our First Amendment. But because we don't care about the lost sheep in America. If we did, I have a feeling that people wouldn't like us as much. That when we reached out for the lowly and the needy, when we defended the fatherless and the widow and the orphan and the sojourner, when we did those things and loved the sheep that Jesus loves, the world would not like us. In 1 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, Paul tells Timothy, all who would live godly lives will face persecution. And yet we don't. Because we don't take risk. We don't know what it is to take a risk. In fact, if you think about it, oftentimes when we consider even whether we would go on a trip or what we might do, everything that we decide is based, our decision is based first on fear. First, we ask, is it dangerous? And then we decide whether we should do it or not. Uh, I just recently got back from a mission trip to India. I went with my pastor Chase and, and uh, my youth minister at, at First Baptist. And I had many people that we had great support from the church. People funded the trip and, and all that. But I, every conversation that I had with a church member or a person in society or, or a family member, anybody, the conversation always began with a an issue of fear. Are you sure you want to do this? It's dangerous over there. Are you sure you want to do this? You could get sick. Are you sure you want to do this? It's a long plane ride. Are you sure you want to do this? There's a lot of persecution going on in India. But the gospel means more than my personal health and wealth and prosperity. 
The gospel matters more than my life. It matters more than anyone's life. And so our first question, especially when it comes to our gospel calling in this world, should never be, is it dangerous? Our first calling, our first question should be, is it what the Lord would have me to do? Is this person possibly one of those lost sheep that Jesus is seeking and saving? And am I passing up on that opportunity because I'm too afraid to be sick or to be unwell or to be laughed at or to be uh, associated with the wrong crowd? We let our fears and our own comfort and personal security keep us from doing the will of God. And maybe it's because living a godly life is something different than what we typically associate it with. Maybe living a godly life is something different than political authority or writing the right laws and having the right judges on the bench. Maybe what the Bible means by godly and what we think it means are two totally different things. Maybe to be godly is to have the heart of Christ. To have the same concerns as Christ. To be found with the poor, with the outcast, and with the sinners. And to be rejected by the political elite because of it. Maybe the, health, uh, maybe the heart of Christ looks like having compassion on the downtrodden and eating a meal with the unclean. This is the love of Christ. That he would risk everything. That he would give everything for the sake of his sheep. Brothers and sisters, we are called to that same love and that same risk. We cannot hide behind our reputation or our safety or our family or our work. We cannot assume that someone else will come along who will save the sheep. It is our task, and may we be about doing it. But maybe you have heard all that I've said and have thought, but preacher, I'm just too weak. And I'm, I've lost my way. I believe, I believe in these things. But I just don't know that I'm one of his sheep. Beloved, you can never be too weak or too needy for Jesus. Jesus loves his sheep and he rejoices over you. Even as he carries you on his shoulders, he rejoices over you. You may be weak in faith. You may have sin that entangles you. You may have the prowling lion, Satan himself, hounding you and telling you that you that how you don't deserve this love of the Savior. But Jesus loves you anyway. He did not come to save the righteous, but sinners. He has not come to help those who can help themselves, but to help those who know they are helpless. Friend, perhaps today you are here and you have come to recognize that you are a lost sheep. Perhaps today, maybe even for the first time, you realize that although you uh, thought you could make it on your own, you could blaze your own trail, you could 
you could do things your own way and live life by your own terms, you are helplessly lost. Too weak to make it on your own. You know that your sin is too heavy a burden to bear on your own. You know that this, li- that this life that you have been living is ultimately meaningless and without purpose. Friend, Jesus is the good shepherd. And he has laid down his life for such as you. He has given himself for your sins. He will take you. Though you may be so very weak, he will take you nonetheless. And he, will, he won't take you with a, with a grudge, but he will take you with rejoicing. In Christ, your sins are forgiven and you have newness of life that will last for all of eternity. Won't you come to the Good Shepherd today? In just a second, the uh, music leaders are going to come up and we're going to have an invitation. And in that invitation, Christ is standing before you today to accept you as that lost sheep. Maybe you, ca- you have recognized, as I've just said, that you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. You need to rest on the shoulders of one who can carry you rejoicing all the way back home and celebrate your coming to repentance and faith. Today is your opportunity to come. I'll be standing down front to receive you and I'd invite you to come and confess your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe today you recognize that you have not had the attitude towards the lost sheep that you should and that you need to repent even though, that you're, even though you're a believer, you need to repent of that attitude of uh, comfort, that attitude of having an angry and resentful stance towards those who are outside of the church and instead to recognize them as the lost sheep of Christ. Maybe today you want to come to the foot of the pulpit and pray and give your heart anew to Christ and to commit to that lost sheep that you know whether it's a sibling or a co-worker or whoever it might be, that you would take the risk of telling them about Christ and seeing them come to the, into the fold of Christ. And maybe today you are weak because of the attacks of Satan, because of the sins that you have dealt with, and you are struggling with your own salvation, and you need that assurance, and you want to come and pray here as well and seek the Lord's comfort and guidance as you repent and turn back to Him. However the Lord is leading you, would you come as we begin this invitation with prayer? Heavenly Father, you are our good shepherd. And you have sent your son who has laid down his life for your sheep. Father, I pray that we would not see the lost as just a burden. As just people who get in the way of our daily lives but rather we would have the heart of Christ towards those who are lost sheep. Father, may we have compassion on them. May we see them as we were once, helpless, needy, and lost. Father, may we lead them to the Savior who can give them a home, give them eternal life, and give them hope for the future. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.